This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders. Was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, diggers. This is Shelley Sorensen, the rock and roll librarian. I've been going to rock concerts since the 1970s, starting with the Grassroots and soon followed by David Bowie's Ziggy Stardust Tour. Yes, I was there. I still love getting out, being in the company of like-minded fans, and letting the music envelop me. If you want to see an exciting concert this summer, I have a suggestion for you. Boy George and his seminal band, Culture Club, are on The Life Tour with the always fun B-52s and special guest Tom Bailey. Here's your chance to catch some of the best of 80s new wave. On September 22nd, they will hit the Event Center stage in Reno, Nevada, So by all means, visit Ticketmaster.com or call 1-800-288-1833 and grab a seat or two or three for your friends. Presented by The Row and Harrah's Reno. Is there a library, a bookstore around here where I could get books on rock and roll? Rock and roll. Story's true. Have you read this one? This is a story that needs to be told. These rock and rollers want something to read. Shh. Quiet, please. Hey, everybody. It's Christian Swain, the rock and roll archaeologist. And with me, as usual, is the wonderful, magnificent, eloquent, exquisite... Shelly Sorensen, the rock and roll librarian. Woo-hoo. Yes, it's another edition of Rock and Roll <laughs> Librarian. How are you doing today, Shelly? I'm doing okay. I'm doing well. Thank you. How yeah, are you? I'm doing good. I'm yeah. doing good. Thanks for asking. So uh, let's see here. Where have you been? Everybody wants to know where you have been because, uh, you know, we, we've only gotten a couple episodes uh, out uh, for you this year. And uh, I know you read all the time. So, you know, uh, what's going on? Oh well, um I don't I've been having some uh end of uh end of childhood mothering uh, issues. Yes, let's yes, just say yes, yes, yeah, that's all yeah. I'm gonna say about yeah, that. Everybody um, everybody has to deal with that at a certain age. Yeah, you it's think usually you're done. You, yeah, 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 you think you think you're done and uh uh, you know, they just uh, keep on coming back for more, right? That's right. <laughs> for more hits. Keep coming back. Yeah. Or is it, who's delivering the hits? I don't know. I but, don't know. Uh, yeah, yeah. I feel yeah, like I'm being yeah, punched. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I keep trying to, you know, I've uh, gone down the rabbit hole of uh, just trying to soothe myself by playing music and mm-hmm. That's uh, right. learning yeah. songs yeah. and yeah. stuff yeah. like that. How's the band? How's that? It's good. It's yeah. very good. Um, yeah. We're on a, we having some health problems in our band. So we're, we're pressing pause right now, but we're going to get back into it soon. And it's, it's fun. Yeah. I'm uh uh, discovering my inner Leo is coming out and I'm really, you know, <laughs> filling the shoes and getting into being the front woman and, you know, that all that stuff. It's fun. 
Well, uh, since uh, you mentioned uh, Leo, and we are in the uh, that period of the astrological calendar, uh, I know you just had a birthday, so everybody wants to say happy birthday. Can Aww. you hear all the diggers saying yep. happy birthday? Thank you, everybody. Isn't That's that so nice? sweet. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, hey, Very. there's a guy over there still singing. Okay. <laughs> I got to blow the candle. That's enough. Yeah, blow there the you go. Blow, out. blow out okay. the candle. All right. So what do we have on the docket today, Shelley? Well, I've read the uh, fabulous book about Paul Simon by Robert Hilburn. Oh, I know it well. Yes. You, I know I really enjoyed your interview with him. Thank um, you. And, you know, since I grew up in L.A., like uh, in the oh, Southern yes. California, yeah, you like you. grew up with Robert Hilburn. Yeah. I did. I was mm. telling my husband, oh, I'm reading this book by by Robert Hilburn, and he said, who's that? And I'm like, what? You yeah. How do you Robert not know Hilburn who Robert Hilburn is? Right, right. Yeah. But I read, you know, his uh, reviews in the paper and yeah. all that. Yeah. So um, it was really fun to hear that interview. Yeah. If you guys haven't heard it, you should go and listen to the interview with Robert Hilburn about how he came to write this book and all that. That was really wonderful. Yeah. In fact, um, you know, because we have done uh, the interview with uh, with Mr. Hilburn uh, and we looked at Paul Simon uh, in a certain way, uh, I think we both decided that we would kind of focus on a different aspect of, of Paul, not so much on, you know, the standard, this was his life, and here's we here's where we went, and here's the 60s, here's the 70s, here's the 80s, uh, and then afterwards, um, you know, because that's kind of like there's three major periods of Paul's creative life, uh, and then, you know, and, and then, you know, he goes to do some other things, continuing to write songs, but, you know, let's face it, the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, he, you know, has massive hits. Uh, in all three uh, decades. so, But we decided we're going to do something a little bit different. So the first thing I want to do is just start with a song um, that, uh, you know, Paul's coming to the end of his career. Uh, you know, he's he's announced this himself and said he's not touring. Uh, this is it. In fact, uh, I think uh, in within the month will be his last show uh, in New York. And uh, he's going to get off the road, probably continue to write and everything like that. But, you know, he's getting up there in age, along with all these other rock stars that, uh, that we grew up with and talk about. So let me start with Slip Sliding Away. Mm. Slip Sliding Away Slip sliding away You know the nearer your destination The more you slip sliding away I know a man He came from my hometown He wore his pants Oh, that's... It's, I don't man, that song means something totally different to me now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, with speaking of getting old. Yeah. <laughs> I just Oh. All right. Uh, it's time to bring out the alcohol and the drugs cuz yeah. I'm not ready to get old. Uh No, it's know. fine. Yeah. I'm I'm fine with yeah. getting old. Yeah. It's good. All right. So, where do we want to start here, Shelley? Well, I mean, I think um you know, you touched on his childhood and his uh 
teens and stuff, but it, it bears repeating that he, you know, he grew up in Queens. Uh, his dad was a musician. So, you know, that was a big influence yeah. on mm-hmm. him. He mm-hmm. played the upright bass in uh, big bands and on radio shows and on CBS shows. And I think, yeah, kind you know, of a journeyman uh, musician. Uh, right. And, kind uh, of like reminds me of Elvis Costello's father, actually, yeah. you know, that yeah. he was just there, you know, having a paid musician gig. And that's what, what they, what happened in those days. I yeah. Mean, almost like lucky. a regular job. Right. Mm-hmm. You were lucky if you got a job as the, he played in the house orchestra for CBS TV shows. And so he inspired Paul, um, you know, they had music in their house and, and also he not just inspired Paul, but Paul really picked up, you know, as you alluded to in your interview, uh, um, on a lot of his dad's kind of, you know, perfectionism and um, craft and, you know, that this was an important thing. It wasn't just a throwaway uh, talent, you know, that you, if you were going to be a musician, you needed to do it right and you needed to have high standards. And work on it every day. And work on it every day and, and, you know, and do a good job at it. So he really, um, you know, he picked up on that. He, um, you know, he was into baseball when he was a kid, but... Um, Very much so. Yes, and still into played, baseball. But he, he played, played, yeah, he played, uh, I think, even through high school. Yes, and yeah. by the time he got to college, of course, he was too... Um, he wasn't the right physical type. <laughs> he was, uh, he was, so was too as short. As he says, he's too short. He was too <laughs> short, <laughs> yeah. sorry. Yeah. And um, so... But he um, really got into music. He listened to Alan Freed's radio show. He was into doo-wop and the early, early R&B. Rock and roll. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, and he um, actually, you know, Art Garfunkel lived in his neighborhood, and they met each other on a production of Alice in Wonderland in high school. Yeah. And they both loved Mad Magazine and baseball. So they got together and started singing together, and he bought a... Lifelong um, frenemies. Yeah, a, a, a little tape player and they started um, recording and blend you know really working on them blending their voices which of course you can hear and all of the stuff they did together but they started that really early they knew that was really important for their voices to really fit together well mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then they started you know and yeah then like Paul, the Everly Brothers uh, right yeah and, and and they and remember these guys start like 1957 I believe yeah yeah so and, at the very early stages of rock and roll Yes. And, um, yeah. And they, you know, and when they heard the Everly brothers, bye bye love, that was a huge thing. I mean, besides Elvis Presley, the Everly brothers were really, um, important for the, the music that they wanted to perform and also the music that they ended up writing. And they came up when wake up little Susie came out, they came up with their own version of that, which they <laughs> yes, called they "Hey Schoolgirl." So yeah. you know, there's a lot of teen school things uh, happening. A uh, 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 kind of a regional hit, yeah, uh, yeah. that uh, that uh, happened. Uh, and uh, hey, they did end up on uh, Dick Clark's American Bandstand That's right. uh, uh, with it. Uh, and they, you know, they weren't called um, uh, Simon and Garfunkel; they no, were no. called Tom and Jerry. I know, uh, which is so funny because I remember that cartoon. <laughs> yes, yes, I mean, that's yeah, all I yeah, think yeah. of when I, I hear I, Tom and Jerry. I know. I the cat and the mouse. All right. Well, let's give a flavor to everybody on uh, that uh, Tom and Jerry song from 1957, Hey Schoolgirl. Hey, 
popular oh, it was popular um, yeah but I, I think anything with that sort of that captured that sound uh, you know just think about it there's not that many people that are you know playing uh this uh at that moment and uh anything um you know probably you know gotta listen uh and so you know something kind of happened but that was it that was there was no no follow-up no no, the, and, I, and that actually they broke up soon after that well yeah did you yeah. know that for the, one of the first of their like 50 Many, breakups I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I like 50 ways to leave a lover how about yeah, 50 ways to, to break up with Garfunkel uh, yeah, yeah 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 like I said you know the lifelong frenemies <laughs> right but right. um yeah, they, you know, uh, and we talked about it. Uh, why uh, they they broke up in the in the interview, and they're definitely in the book. Uh, you know, uh, you know, Paul kind of mea culpas that, you know, it, it was a it was kind of a happenstance happenstance, uh, a bit of an accident. You know, the uh, the producer kind of called Paul in and said, "Hey, I you know I know you got some other songs. Let's hear those songs." And they just did a little recording session, and then when Art found out about it, he you know blew. He a felt betrayed. Felt betrayed. Yeah, and, and that was the end of Tom and. Jim. That's right. Yeah. And Art Thankfully. went away to Columbia. Thankfully. <laughs> yeah. Paul Paul went to college, but not seriously. Um, he knew he knew he was going to be a musician. Yeah, Queens College, yeah. And yeah. He, he, he went to Manhattan and he continued to write sh- songs. Yeah, and I went down to, 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 to uh, Greenwich Village and tried to get into the folk scene and, uh, and all of that. In fact, uh, I know he played in front of... Uh, of um, uh, Bob Dylan and um, uh, and Albert Gro- Grossman one night. Who yeah. they Bob says he was drunk. He doesn't even remember. <laughs> uh, and uh, they kind of laughed at him. Yeah. 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 That's sad. Yeah. But um, maybe they were laughing about something else. Yeah, yeah and that's kind of what yeah. Dylan alludes to. And then Paul kind of probably believes that. Yeah. That's but I the think case. you know Dylan was um, mentioned as a as a real game changer for um, Simon because he realized he didn't have to all this time for several years, actually, he tried to get a hit by imitating other, popular other people, music right, of yeah, the time. Yeah, yeah. And when he went well, to Well, like Greenwich, Hey Schoolgirl. I mean, that was, right. you know, that was a copy. It was a ripoff of yeah. uh, Everly Brothers. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. And so when he went to Greenwich Village and, and, and experienced Joan Baez and Bob Dylan, he realized, oh, there's this whole world out there where you're using, like Dylan's use of words, um, you know, really spurred him on an evolution of songwriting and also the relief of not having to write a pop hit and instead, you know, blend his love of music um, and things that he was learning in college about writing and becoming more aware of society um, really, really kind of goosed him into more more serious songwriting. Well, the, the funny thing is, is and, and this can, comes out in the interview, and folks, uh, you know, it's a companion piece to this, uh, or if you've listened to the interview, that's great, you're here. Um, something that I took away from my interview with, uh, with Robert Hilburn was the fact that that 
eight years uh, between um, uh, Hey School Girl and uh, and Sound of Silence, which you know breaks uh, Simon and Garfunkel, and uh, he makes all these demos, and not one of them are any good. And to Hilburn's point, he says there's not really even any progress, right? Which I find really, really strange. You would think that ah, somebody would hone their skills and get better and get better and get better, and then all of a sudden, boom! Of course, then right. they make the sound of silence. But but that's he learned so much other stuff in that time period. Yeah, of course, and uh, and uh, and a lot of things that will serve him very well in the future right. because of uh, working in the recording studios themselves, right? Uh, and then you know work in the distribution angle. I mean, right. he even sold records. Uh, I think uh, out on the you know out on the circuit yep. uh, as yep. a salesman, yep. uh, uh, as a record plugger, I should right. say. So, um, so it's pretty crazy. And he learned about keeping his publishing, which yeah. totally oh, kicked in right away. That's a huge, huge yeah. thing that so many other musicians just miss. Right. And the fact is, is you know, uh, uh, Paul Simon, you know, <laughs> uh, was able to have a very lucrative career. Career by keeping the publishing, right. uh, so that that really helped a lot. Yeah, but, and he he learned other things too, like singing harmonies with himself. You know, yeah, imitating yeah, other yeah. people's voices, overdubbing. Yeah, you know, just stuff about recording and which were and, all in its infancy at the time yeah. too. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's the tricks Tracks of, of and, the yeah. of the studio. Yeah, as the technology is getting better and better during that period of time. But finally, in 1964, um, you know, he had. As a, a song, uh, and I know that he puts a lot of effort into right. making that song. Facts, he started apparently writing it in 1963, mm-hmm. and it took him a while. Um, he um, it wasn't he, it just after the the, the Kennedy assassination? Yes, uh-huh. I believe so. And so he, um, what Hilburn says is his subconscious was full of the social issues of the time. So he'd said he didn't, I didn't sit down to write about alienation in America. I'm not saying the song isn't about that, but it wasn't my intention. And that's still true of my writing today. So that's a theme, you know, as we talk about the songs, which is that he doesn't start out with an, uh, an idea of, this song is going to be about the Kennedy assassination or what's going to go, what's happening in America right now. But uh, one thing I really liked about the way Hilburn described this was that... It's just infused in it. Yeah, was that his subconscious is his co-writer. So he starts by um, getting some, some music, you know, like he writes the music... First, he comes up with some lines that go with the music. And then as he's kind of playing off that, he comes up with other things that fit. They fit the music, they fit the words, and he starts to see a a theme emerge. Like it's coming out, it's just coming out of him. The theme, the, what's going on is just coming out while he's writing the song. It's yeah, not, of which he, you know, he's one of those craftsmen that, you know, he takes a block of wood and, uh, you know, he starts to chip away at it and then you know, uh, chip here and then make small uh, indentations there and then begin to sand it and sand it and right. sand it right. over. It's almost like uh, 
you know, Michelangelo used to say that, uh, you know, he, he just chips away the unneeded parts uh, mm-hmm. and reveals what God had inside. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's yeah. cool. That's a nice way of thinking about it. Well, of course, let's let's play, you know, the song that puts him on the map, um, uh, certainly as a songwriter, uh, and changes his destiny, and that is The Sound of Silence. Okay. Hello darkness, my old friend I've come to talk with you again Because a vision softly creeping Left its seeds while I was sleeping And the vision that was planted in my brain Still remains within the sound yeah so I, apparently you know what I what, what I read in the in the book was that uh, uh, and this is unusual folks I mean usually I don't read the books and yeah. uh, purposefully uh, and because I have other reading to do and Shelley reads these and then uh, you know we have a discussion but luckily on this one where we, we we have both read it um, but I believe you know just after the Kennedy assassination uh, he was so distraught uh, by the event that he ends up in the bathroom in the bathtub for like three days just plucking away until he begins to form what becomes the song right yeah that's really interesting and then when he he um came up with kind of a half-finished version of it um and took it to england because when he graduated Mm -hmm. from college which he did um Mm -hmm. he went to england um and Paris for a while and he it, it was freeing for him because he he could just um you know play it in the pubs and kind of get some feedback on it and feel like he was on to something getting good reactions and he was more accepted in England and in the, in America he was kind of like the kid from Queens and he would have had to you know he, he just didn't have a um kind of a good springboard in the US so and then uh, this was the first time when he went to England too he really st- he started using his actual name rather than still being Jerry was he Tom or he was Jerry yeah. Jerry Landis yeah was yeah. his name was his other name well I- interesting you know I think that that a yes a, a, he goes to England he's a real American playing real American rock and roll mm-hmm. uh, and the English kids would eat that up you know that and at the same time it's you know he's an exotic and the land itself is exotic and he's picking up influences that most American kids would would not do you know it's almost like the the uh you know the idea of you know that the the beatles and the stones and how they happened were, was because they actually played american music poorly oh. <laughs> so they, they ended up creating some new sound uh-huh. uh by trying to imitate it in a in a in a 
poor way. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, there's, there's a famous uh, um, blues man. Uh, you know, I can't remember if it was Howlin' Wolf or Muddy Waters or what have you. You know, basically said, um, uh, you know, yeah, they, yeah, they, 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 they played the blues bad. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, so. And they didn't mean it like people do now. That's bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they mean badly. Yeah. So he's over there. I think he's over there for about a year, right? Yeah, and he, you know, started right, he comes a relationship. Back and, yeah, yeah, yeah. He comes back right. and forth. Like the song yeah. did well. They wanted him to come back and sign a. Contract with Columbia, so Simon and Garfunkel got back together. Um, Roy Halley came on uh, the scene. He yeah. was their engineer who yeah. they collaborated with over time. But, you know, he had a serious relationship in England, um, and, um, you know, which uh, obviously didn't withstand the uh, the distance and the kind of the fame aspect. But, um, and then, you know, as you spoke about in the interview, um, Something happened where um, the the sound of silence was reworked and more was added to it, and it crept up the charts and really exploded at a certain point. Because when it was first released, it wasn't really that popular. Um, right. And uh, yeah, and they had to who um, somebody Columbia put out. Uh, a, a new album with that one on it and some more of Paul's original songs. So they'd had a, an album come out Wednesday, Monday, Wednesday morning, 3 a.m. Yeah. Uh, in that time, which was half originals and half covers. Common uh, for those days. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, and then, and then, you know, the, then the sound of silence became really popular and got on the charts and, um, you know, and did its thing. And, and becomes started, a cultural phenomenon. Yeah, and people yeah. start paying attention to him. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, they, let's see, you know, then they got real famous, but they were, you know, their lives didn't change a whole lot until they got a, a great manager, Mort Lewis, who found them some college gigs. Now you can imagine that was pretty fun, uh, popular and fun. <laughs> yeah. And, um, yeah, I, I remember reading in the book that uh, you know basically uh, art just decides to hitchhike to all the uh, all the concerts, all yeah, the shows. That's yeah. weird. <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah, another song that he he con- conceived of at least while he was in England, oh, whether yeah. whether he wrote it or not, there is um, is up for um, argument. But um, "Homeward Bound" was his next excellent song that was. Uh, apparently um, thought up a, at a, um, a a railroad station in Widnes. Yeah, on his way Manchester home to, uh, what was the girlfriend's name? Kathy. Kathy, Kathy Chitty. Kathy Chitty, right. She had, reminds yeah. me of Chatty Kathy, who we used to have, I used to have that doll when I was little. <laughs> you pull the string and she'd yeah, say whatever. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. but yeah, he was, uh, he was uh, supposedly at a train uh, station waiting for the train and uh, kind of wrote the basics of it. And, right, uh, and that, that was, was his second way, great yeah. song. Yeah. Apparently that, that, that town used, um, has been using yes. that notoriety <laughs> Regardless for, for many, Regardless of whether many it was years. actually written there or not. Yes, right? that's right. Yeah. They got and, a plaque in the train station and you know but anyway uh, many ways many times that's how history is made yeah let's have a listen determined right let's listen to uh, homeward bound i'm sitting in the railway station got a ticket for my destination Mm -hmm. on a tour of one night stands my 
my suitcase and guitar in hand And every stop is neatly planned For a poet and a one-man band Homeward bound I wish I was Homeward bound Home where my thoughts escaping Home where my music's playing Home Okay, so interestingly, um, you know, that the song that he wrote, this song that he wrote, when he was trying to get home to Kathy Chitty, well, we know that that relationship didn't last. And I thought it was very interesting and kind of strange that the next woman he had a relationship with, a serious relationship, and Mary oh, was his, uh, manager's, his wife. manager's ex-wife. 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 Yes, they didn't yes. start yes, until... Yes, yes, yeah. 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 So... <laughs> And, and the and the and the manager stayed being the manager. So That's uh, right. He was all he was fine with it. Oh, it was yeah. fine. <laughs> Don't want to mess with that relationship, the manager relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, they um I thought that it was uh one one thing he got on the bandwagon of is he started thinking about um re- focusing more on albums than singles around this time, which actually dovetailed nicely with what was going on in the rest of the country where, you know, oh, the, uh, rest of the, music the world. Pet Sounds yeah. and Sgt. Peppers oh, were yeah, coming yeah. out. Yeah. So he was right on the mark with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but he wasn't, apparently they missed the boat with the Monterey Pops Festival uh, because they were not... They had missed the hippie bandwagon. So, um, you know, he says... Uh, it, it was all going to be hippies and we were going to be out. But you know what? Six months later, it wasn't all hippies and we weren't forgotten. No. Actually, we were bigger than ever because of the graduate. Well, yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's ginormous. Yeah, that's uh, what came along. Yeah, yeah. yeah and that's uh, what, 68, 69, I believe. Uh, 67, I guess they started filming uh, it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, they, and, and I think uh, Mike Nichols wanted... Um, uh, Paul Simon to write a song. He did. For, for he that. wanted him them to contribute music to the film. Yeah, because he was really loved their first two albums, and he used Mike Nichols, the director. Mike but, Nichols, yeah. yeah. He used the sound of silence, Scarborough Fair, and April comes, she will, which yeah. I'm not familiar with. Um, and then also Simon and Garfunkel, or or Paul anyway, had been working on a song called Mrs. Roosevelt. And oh, that <laughs> famous Mrs. Roosevelt song, yes. Yeah, so he had the melody and the chorus, and Nichols loved the song, so they changed the name to Mrs. Robinson and weaved that into the film. I wonder, now, the part I didn't remember was whether they had already named the character Mrs. Robinson. Yeah, they must have. And then they decided to change the name to Mrs. Robinson from Mrs. Roosevelt. Right. So then um, that was one of his songs where, you know, he was starting, he was really getting more into having the music and the words interact mm-hmm. um, in very complex ways. And this is one of, that would become one of his most distinctive traits. And this is one of the songs where that really comes out. And I don't know if you mentioned this in the interview, but Joe DiMaggio was initially offended yes. by his reference he, to him. I, he, I, I didn't, but oh, yes, he was where very Where have you offended. gone, Joe DiMaggio? Yeah. I'm right here selling yeah. Mr. Coffee Machine. Yes, that's right. But he, but Paul was referring to the time period and not that DiMaggio yes. was no. gone, but that the time of innocence the, exactly. and the time of heroes exactly. was gone. Right. So right. anyway, great song, great movie. Don't you think? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
I love that movie. Let's play a little of Mrs. Robinson. This is the beginning of um, kind of it. It's taking Paul longer to write songs now because he wouldn't accept the quality of what he wrote. You know, in the in the olden days, all the crap that he was putting out because he was trying to copy people. Now he's really, really honing, focused honing, on honing, quality, honing. Yeah. Yeah. and he spent all his time composing. And protecting his artistry. Well, you can you can even hear the complexity uh, rise in the short uh, clip that we just played. Oh yeah. Uh, you know the interplay between uh, the, uh, the 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 little vocals uh, going on there, and then the little guitar lines uh, around mm-hmm. it, both mm-hmm. uh, the strumming uh, and the picking. Right. Yeah. And it was clear at this point too that he was he was going to be his own producer because he had <laughs> ideas about what he heard yeah. and how it's going to come out. Yeah, that's uh, going to be a double-edged sword for him in yeah. the future yep. here. So yep. uh, he becomes control. perfectionist and he becomes a control freak. Yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, that works in some respects and uh, it's a detriment in, in others. That's right. Yeah. So, yeah. and I believe that... That was that. That's like the height of, uh, of of Simon and Garfunkel, and now they are you know international superstars. And um, I believe uh, Mr. Garfunkel starts taking an interest in other movies. Yes, Catch Twenty Two. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. He, yes, because you know, and the and the record company was it Columbia at that time? Yeah. yeah. Was pressuring them, of course, you know, once you have a cash cow, oh, gosh, they want yeah. you to do albums after albums after albums. And, you know, of course, Paul is honing his craft and trying to put out good stuff. Um, and in the meantime, Garfunkel's on a movie set. So this is another rift in their relationship because, um, you know, he, he's like, Paul is resentful because art is not there and art is resentful because Paul's getting all this credit and mm-hmm. being a, an artist and, a, you know, and getting lots of good feedback on that. Um, but, you know, that was good for Paul because he felt validated um, as a songwriter. And it was in this time that he wrote one, another amazing song, which I just love, which is The Boxer. Oh, I, I, I think that's my favorite. Um, it's amazing. It's definitely my favorite Simon and Garfunkel song, yeah. uh, if not uh, Paul Simon's song. I wrote this down. He wrote it largely on the back of an airline air sickness bag. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, really? And this was one, I think, where the 
the words came maybe more easily to him. At 30,000 feet? Um, yeah, right. I don't know. Oh. I mean, it didn't say he was in the air when he was doing it. I'm assuming he was. <laughs> well, where else are you going to yeah. have an air sickness Well, I mean, bag? maybe brought it home as a souvenir. I don't know. Really? And used it as writing really? paper. <laughs> you wanna, really? I'm just making this up. All right. So anyway, this is apparently about his early anxiety as a songwriter, addressing his struggles and triumphs and thinking about his own journey. And in this case, you know, like what I said about him being a produ- his own producer, the, the musicians marveled that he knew just what he wanted the musicians to play, and he was invariably right. Yeah, I know a little bit about that with uh, with an interview that I did with Hal Blaine. Oh. Uh, and, you know, Hal worked with uh, Paul Simon uh, several times. Mm-hmm. And, That's uh, right. He, he was said, on this uh, recording. Yeah, he said that this was, he was quite the, quite the stickler on things, but he was collaborative as well. That's right. And he, yeah, exactly. That's what I remember, too, is that he was very precise in what he heard and what he wanted, but he was interested in hearing other people's ideas. And um, I did write down that about Hal Blaine. His snare drum was put in an elevator shaft to make sure it would sound explosive. Yes. He had to play a cannonball-like explosion to a dramatic counterpoint to the sing-along quality. You know, where everybody's going, la, 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 la. Yeah. Right. And he remembers how the elevator door opened just as he came down on the drums and an elderly security guard looked out and heard the power of the drum and it nearly scared him to death. (laughs) (laughs) Well, ladies and gentlemen, here is the boxer. Just a poor boy, though my story is seldom told I have squandered my resistance For a pocket full of mumbles, such are promises All lies and chest, still a man hears What he wants to hear and disregards the rest No more than a boy in the company of strangers in the quiet of the railway station running scared. Okay, folks, you know, I can't play that much of the song. You're just going to go have to download the whole thing to hear Hal Blaine's snare uh, hits uh, at the uh, at the chorus. Uh, <laughs> but you do get to hear a little bit of, of some of these interesting sounds that he's now starting to play with, like the mouth harp uh, there, to give mm-hmm. this unusual um, feel uh, to, uh, to, uh, to a song. Right. And, and the other thing um, I found interesting about that song was that the guitar riff um, was written in a special tuning. And... Apparently, when people try to cover that song, they don't know the tune. They're always doing it and wrong. And they do it wrong. And But it was played by um, live um, by Paul Simon and Fred Carter on the recording. Yeah, so that's right. That was it, it was done live. And I think they do it together at the mm-hmm. same time. I think so, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. pretty amazing. Yeah, it really is. It's yeah. beautiful. Yeah. Well... And now we're getting towards the end of Simon and Garfunkel. That's right. We got to get to the bridge. The bridge. <laughs> oh, very funny. The bridge yeah. over troubled water. Yeah, because uh, yeah, that was it. That was the pretty much, uh, well, that, that, you know, and again, here is another song that is taking them to another level of international superstardom. And then 
Paul Simon just says, okay, I'm done. Yep, that's right. He tried to t- They tried to talk him out of it, but he was done. But in this one... Yeah, I think Art- Clive Davis says uh, this is going to be the worst mistake of your that's entire right. life. But he realizes now, looking back, that it wasn't. Yeah. But who knew? Yeah. Who knew that? That's ballsy. Yep. For such yeah. a small guy. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, I still don't. I don't, still don't understand why people say ballsy because that's not not a strong part of a man's body. Uh, no. But anyway, okay. Sorry. Um, I just I always I always mystifies. It's not the most me. attractive part if that's well, what no, you're trying it's, to say. It's, it's delicate. Oh yes, okay? that is I'm true. I'm sorry. It's not strong. You're, oh, you're absolutely right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I'm yeah. gonna take. I'm gonna. That's my new platform. <laughs> Row a vagina. Yeah. All right. I'm allowed to say that. Cause well, because that own. is rather strong. That is. It takes yeah. a lot of pounding, as it... somebody said. I can't remember. <laughs> oh, I can't wow. remember where I, where I, some great woman said that. Yeah. Wow. Maybe I, it was I wish Walker. I had the snare shot in the, yeah. in the, in the, in the, in the symbol. Yeah. You'll be here all week, right? That's right. Oh, okay. All right. So anyway, bridge over troubled water. Okay, so this is yes, his tell me rule. About bridge uh, his over rule water. continued to be never set out to write a song by th- picking a theme. So it's c- um, continued on this song. He let the music lead the way, and he spoke about an imaginary friend who often whispers things in his ears. <laughs> <laughs> That's the song. Is that the writing. drugs kicking in? No, or? I don't think so. It, yeah. It's like like Nick Lowe well, said. Maybe there's he's, a bloke on the other side of the wall yeah. that he's waiting for to tell him how what to write in his song. Uh, so he's paying <laughs> he's paying attention to that subconscious. The we subconscious. Talked about a little that's bit right. Ago. Okay. But and this one was um, inspired by a gospel album. He loved gospel music, as do I. Oh, I and I think that's obvious, music. especially as we get into the seventies. That's right. Yeah. And the the mis the, the emotion of the singers and the songs oh, and the mystery. Oh. So he was listening to one by the silver tones called oh mary don't you weep and that from there he got the line i'll be a bridge over deep water if you trust in my name so it's just a one line in that song but he was paying attention and first he wrote the melody and then he started writing the words and the essence in the first two verses were done in about two hours so that unusual for him seems it, Very it just felt like yeah. it just flowed through him and it's this one like can if i can invoke nick lowe again which he said about what's so funny about peace love and understanding you almost feel like you can't really call it your own because it's like something took over and wrote the song for you but right. it obviously is your own but it's it came out of you but it was guided by something else well hopefully that person's lawyers doesn't don't come <laughs> yeah <out>, right so. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently this is kind of an addictive feeling because once you oh, do it I bet. you want to get it back again yeah um yeah. and yeah. he likes the i first... believe they call that the muse that's right All right and it's another another um kind of um thing that he has used through a lot of his songs he likes the first lines of the songs to be truthful and very autobiographical, and those were, and the rest comes from his imagination. So, in this one, you know, is down and out. Um, that that was something from his real life, but then he lets the rest of the song come along on its own. And um, apparently, the part "Sail on Silver Girl" was an allusion to his then girlfriend who was his 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 manager's ex-wife right. um noticing gray hairs in her head and that and then she was the silver girl of the third verse 
Well, let's so. listen to a little of, you know, incredibly uh, iconic song, Bridge Over Troubled Water. That's, um, you know, we can only play a short bit of this, folks. So, again, I hope you go and download or uh, stream every one of these songs because every one of them is uh, is a classic. And, you know, here, uh, unlike most of the Simon and Garfunkel songs, which are purposefully duets, uh, and, in fact, that's kind of how they got signed. Uh, yep. I think Paul Simon went in and said, hey, I got these songs. And they said, we already got a singer-songwriter in Bob Dylan uh, there at Columbia. And he said, well, hold on a minute. I and got a partner. Let me just run out yeah, and yeah. get my guy yeah. here. And so, you know, you get to hear, you know, the voice of an angel, um, uh, you know, uh, Mr. Garfunkel, uh, and that, you know, Artie by himself is there just with the piano, especially in those first, you know, couple of verses. Um, and and I know that was a bit of a of a contention between them because you know let's face it you know um, you know you have uh, Paul who's writing these fantastic songs but the funny thing is is in in a lot of ways art is kind of like the face the that uh, yeah. is getting the accolades uh, and I know there's a famous story at uh, Carnegie Hall where uh, you know it's uh, it's uh, sung as um, as either a closer or the encore and you know there's uh, just uh, the piano player and um, uh, and Art Garfunkel yeah. singing the song and and it ends and the the audience just you know bursts into a standing ovation. Yeah, that was the first time they heard it. It debu- debuted. Yeah, the first there. time. Yeah, yeah, the first time it was ever played live, and Art just kind of soaked in all the adulation and never bothered to call. Uh, Paul Simon out right. from the wings. Yeah, so, it wasn't again, just his voice no, that was yeah. that people were clapping about. He, you know, there's the frenemy bit again uh, of these two guys. Oh yeah, uh, over they got a competition decades. definitely. Um, yeah, yeah, and um, and that, now here, this is it. This is you know not that that caused the demise of of Simon and Garfunkel. From what I gather, and from what I've heard, and from what I read in the book, it's more. It just Paul Simon felt that it had reached its uh, its apogee and really there was nowhere else to take it. Yeah, and I think also he was getting a little bit tired of just writing songs that Art could sing. You know, when he, there maybe were songs that he wanted to write that Art wouldn't want to sing or that Paul felt were better for him to sing because they came out of his soul. And I totally understand that. I yeah. mean, and they, you know, they... Kind of, um, Paul knew pretty soon after that that um, he didn't want to still be in this duo, but they still had to finish an album um, because they had a contract. And um, so, but they 
they did break up soon after they finished that album, which <laughs> I don't even remember which album that was on now, but that was the one, um, you know, that they finished and, and then they, and then Art agreed to make another movie, which was what, Carnal Knowledge, I think. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, and just, and Paul just went, that's just too much. I mean, you want to be a, you know, you want to be a, a movie actor or you want to be in this band but you know and he knew when he was when they were breaking up and when he left that duo that that he well he thought he knew that he would never be as big as Simon and Garfunkel but he did it anyway because he needed you know to to follow his art and but the fact was that we know that he was you know he did he did do some things that rivaled Simon and Garfunkel. <laughs> yeah, so, I, well, you know he he and has. Who knew? They didn't know at the he time. He has his moments in the seventies, and then of course he has you know a giant uh, music changing event in the eighties. Right. So, um, but yeah, so he uh, decides to uh, go to on his own. walk away yep. uh, at the at their peak, yep. uh, and uh, and starts working on, on a, a solo, solo album. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And um, he decided to actually go to Jamaica and because he loved reggae and he loved ska and, um, and he just wanted to infuse his songwriting with some, some more influences and bring it along. Yeah, this, um, is, this is kind of the beginning of, uh, you know, the, the world music uh, uh, that Paul Simon, you know, becomes like, you know, uh, one of the Western fathers of. Right. Uh, and, you know, most famously by, you know, by Graceland. Right. Uh, but this is later the on. But this is the beginning. This of is it, the right? beginning. And he, he loved um, the movie The Harder They Come which was a great movie if you guys haven't seen it um, with Jimmy Cliff oh that's right and uh, the, so a, a rock and roll basically a music movie you know with music being mm. a big part of the movie are you suggesting that maybe uh, Andy King from Real Rock should uh, do a oh, review oh that would be of... so awesome yes. you know, I mean, we, we when I was in college we watched that movie several times and we loved that album um, but I haven't seen it recently I would love to watch it again and hear Andy's wink wink um you know take on that well maybe the muse will strike him uh you know some sub some subconscious voice uh (laughs) mine you mean (laughs) (laughs) that's funny so anyway so he went he went to jamaica and he he was thinking about um what it would be like to lose a child or a father or a mother um, and he was influenced by the song on the Harder They Come soundtrack, which was an anti-war song called Vietnam. Um, so that made him think about all these things. And then he thought of the title first, which was based on a Chinese chicken and egg dish. Get it? Mother and Child Reunion. So what? that was huh? that's that's huh? the that's the name of a of a of a um yes. a dish on a Chinese menu. Yeah. So anyway, the, the chicken and, and the egg. Yeah, the yeah. chicken and the right. the mother right. and child reunion. Uh. <laughs> so he says, whatever the song's precise story, it offered a better day, and it's one of the songs I'm learning of his right now too. Are you? Yes, really? I love that one. Oh, I might put it on my SoundCloud. Oh, so let's hear Shelley Sorensen play. <laughs> The Mother and Child Reunion. Uh, Well, let's have Paul Simon do it instead.
So I love that song, and apparently Paul Simon loved that song, too. Well, I know what I'm ordering the next time I go to a yeah. Chinese restaurant. <laughs> They'll go, what? <laughs> yeah. so, uh, but you, yeah. you, you definitely hear uh, the reggae influences, oh, yeah. the upstrokes oh, yeah. and the guitar, the Caribbean drums going on back there, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, he had some he had a little bit of writer's block before he... He wrote that one, and once he wrote that, he got he got freed up, and he was able to start on another one, which is also another one I love, Me and Julio Down by the Schoolyard. Um, he, he got some Latin music touches in there, mm-hmm. but he also yeah. got into that whole free association wordplay, um, you know, and it's a little bit of a mystery because fans are listening to it and goes, well, what's going on here? You know, and just kind of riffing off the, the rhymes and the, the phrases and uh, pulling images uh, from everywhere he could because he liked the sounds of them or they rhymed better or he could f- fit a phrase into a pop song like The House of Detention, which how many times do you get to sing that in a pop song? So that, you know, just fit in. And he was just having fun. He considers it the happiest song he ever wrote. It, it, it is. It's rather strange that it is a top 40 uh, hit. Mm-hmm, so that's, mm-hmm. that's pretty amazing in itself. So, ladies and gentlemen, uh, me and Julio, down by the schoolyard. Mama pajama rolled out of bed and she ran to the police station. When the papa found out, he began to shout and he started the investigation. It's against the law. It was against the law. Oh, what the mama saw. It was against the law. Who the mama looked down and spit on the ground every time her name gets mentioned. So, uh, while we were listening to the song, you mentioned a particular instrument. How, how did that go? Oh, the, that one. Yeah, I don't know what it's called, though, but I was watching, I don't know, Letterman or, or Stephen Colbert or something, and they were, and Paul Simon was on there uh, singing that song, and the guy who plays that instrument took a solo. I mean, it's just funny because it was well, like that. It was just really, really cool. Thank God for the internet. Yes. I have found the answer for you. Okay. The percussion sound in the song, unusual for American pop, was created by a kukia. The kukia? A Brazilian friction drum instrument often used in samba music. Ah, there you go. Yeah. That was the Latin... uh, music touch right yeah cool 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 (laughs) that's cool what's it called again kukia kukia uh c-u-i-c-a oh kukia okay yes i believe that's how you say it maybe uh we will be is it brazilian no kukia kukia we don't know kukia it might be a ch in there (laughs) no (laughs) i'm looking i'm looking at it's a it's a portuguese pronunciation oh okay all right kukia all right very cool so i think i was pretty close 
So, yeah, after that, he returned to one of his favorite genres, which was gospel music, and decided to use the Dixie Hummingbirds on his second solo album. Oh, yes, the musical traveler here, Paul Simon. Going from place to place, uh, picking up little tidbits wherever he may find them. That's right. And I love that, you know, the Dixie Hummingbirds, they they did some... Yeah, gospel, a fairly um, famous gospel uh, group. group, yeah. And he met uh, Claude Jeter was part of that. Um, and, well, I, maybe he's not, he wasn't part of the Dixie Hummingbirds, but he met them on his gospel journey. And that his, he was the one who had sung the bridge over Troubled Water Line and the Silvertones uh, recording that he got that, um, that uh, inspiration from. And he, Paul actually wrote him a check to show his appreciation. And that's for, something that Paul Simon's been very diligent about, yes. is making sure all the musicians that he works with are paid very well. That's right. And, uh, and giving credit where where he can or where yeah. he feels it's And he due. doesn't just give credit, he gives monetary credit, right. which is very yeah, important yeah, for people yeah. who need that money. Yeah. When you can imagine a gospel group is not probably swimming in it. So yeah. Yeah. Um, he also used Alan Toussaint on this um, record. Alan comes up in a lot of our conversations. Oh, yes, he, he does. He said uh, Paul had a great workmanlike manner, didn't waste time, was self-assured and respectful of the musicians. So, and then he, um, and then he also used the Muscle Shoals rhythm section on on this album. There goes Ryman yeah, Simon. Yeah, the old Swampers, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. which which featured this next song that we we're going to talk about, Kodachrome. Um, what is a Kodachrome? Kodachrome. For, for those of us younger than, you know, what, oh, probably That's the kind of color film that Kodak developed, right? Right, right. And, um, and, you know, and speaking of appreciation and due credit, he gave the band co-producer credit on this song. Um, and he, for the first title he thought of for, for the song was Going Home, but he didn't want to use that because it was too common. So he played the melody over and over again and tried to think of words that sounded like going home and finally came up with Kodachrome, which sounded interesting and nobody had ever used that in a song title. You think? And, and that, choosing the title of the song helped him create the lyrics and this is just yeah, another uh, of, of, of you know the 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 black and white right. uh, all and the all the uh, the oh. color makes things look better the than they look yes, in real God life it. you yes, know like the your metaphors, black, right, that's right. right colors are yeah. are richer yeah. and he knows it's a hype but he doesn't care right exactly. so and the other song they recorded with the Dixie Hummingbirds was loves me like a rock which is great too but we're going to We can play only play one Kodachrome. Oh, I loved that song when I was a kid. You know, I just it, it, the imagery was so palp, pal, palpable. 
Excuse me. <laughs> Say that again. Pal, 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 You know, uh, you, you know, you could just, you know, it, it, it just took you away uh, as soon as you heard it. You, your imagination was just uh, sprung wide open. Yeah, and you could like in, envision the colors. Mm-hmm. Well, at least I did. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I could just think of uh, it, it, what's coming back to me is, uh, you know, knowing the difference of old movies of black and white and new movies in color mm-hmm. uh, and things like that. So just, uh, you know, just a brilliant use of uh, of metaphor uh, yeah. in a in a, you know, uh, and then telling a story in, you know, what, uh, you know, three minutes. Yeah. I had one of those little in- Instamatic cameras, you know, the little brownie and the and the Kodak camera oh, and I yeah. remember getting the um the prints and having them be very colorful but not like real life really so mm-hmm. I totally know what he means there yeah was, yeah my father was a professional photographer oh, so really? yeah you know I, I you know I, I knew what a Kodachrome was yeah uh, I, you know even you know probably when I was uh, oh probably probably was about 12 or 13 when that song came out mm-hmm. yeah so pretty amazing. Yep. Yeah. Yep, so yep. Paul Simon, uh, you know, does definitely turns into a uh, solo uh, star uh, yeah. through the seventies. Yeah. Uh, he goes on to make a uh, questionable movie, One Trick oh, Pony. Yeah, that's right. If you remember that. Yes. Uh, and then also is on on Saturday Night Live uh, a few times. Uh, he becomes a, a really good friend with uh, you know the famed uh, producer of Saturday Night Live, that's right. Michaels. Yeah. Uh, and um, uh, you know, shows up on a turkey suit uh, <laughs> yeah. to uh, to sing. Uh, uh, was it Bridge Over Troubled Water? Or I'm pretty um, sure. I don't know about that one, but he did. I've been corrected um, on that. So. Still crazy after still all crazy these years, after all these and years, me and yes. Julio down yeah. by the schoolyard. Yeah. Some funny, yeah. uh, you know, skits involving those songs. I, you know, he met Lauren, Lauren Michaels. They became friends right before Lauren Michaels started Saturday Night Live. So they, yeah. They, they, you know, they benefited off of each other's. Like he had a big name musician to put on his show and Paul got a lot of, um, you know, of airtime and, yeah, and got yeah. to hone his comedy skills, yeah. which were um, very good. And then, of course, in 1981, uh, Simon and Garfunkel get back together for uh, the concert in the park. That's right. Which was this gigantic uh, event that I don't think either one of them were prepared for or no. or knew. I, I think even in the book it says that they had no clue that it was this big a deal when they were actually doing it. Right, and they kind of left the stage going, "Well, that sucked." Yeah. Uh, and and it was. I think it was also uh, uh, a. Uh, HBO live uh, television event, uh, which right. was right. you know new and, and unusual at right. the time, and they had a live double album. Come yeah, out of that, that came out of it, and and all of this, and so now you know he, he could have gone on the uh, you know the tour circuit uh, and just uh, you know milked the Simon and Garfunkel thing again, and now with these new songs of Paul Simon from the seventies, but no, that's not what he does. No. And, um, you, oh, I know one interesting thing about that live concert album was that Art insisted on overdubbing all of his vocals because he wasn't happy with them. Can you imagine how, what a time-consuming process that was? I think Paul just, you know, was like, oh my God, I can't believe it. <laughs> but, you know, they, they got um, pressured to do an album together. Oh, yeah. 
Um, and they started, oh, that's right. He started. That's they right. started doing the album, and Paul, partway into it, realized... Said, I, I can't do this. I, he, do, he didn't want fit. Art's right. voice yeah. on some of his songs. And Art was trying to write a harmony, and Paul was like, no, that's not right. And finally, um, he just said, no, this has to be a solo album. I can't. That was Hearts and Bones. Right. Uh, I can't. And I guess Art bowed out pretty gracefully. Um, and at, at this time... He was um, with Carrie Fisher, who, I mean, not Art, but Paul Simon, you guys know that, um, that they were, you know, having a relationship and she had serious drug problems and and got diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Yeah, some mental health issues as well. During that time. Um, But... um, R.I.P. Carrie Fisher. Hmm? R.I.P. Carrie Fisher. Yeah. Yeah. Great lady. Yeah. Um, so anyway, the next, uh, big deal for Paul Simon after all of that was Graceland. I think some of you have heard of that album <laughs> and that uh, phenomenon. Yeah. A phenomenon. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. He uh, was 42 at that time. Um, and, good time to, you know, yeah. good, good time to make it. And a, apparently Hearts and Bones didn't do too well. And no, so he kind not. of figured, well, I don't have anything to lose. I'm just going to follow my knows and and do what i want to do and he decided um he was attracted to south african music and well he there, decided, there's some controversy to that i believe oh, yeah. there's a, another singer songwriter that had given him a tape of some uh, demos that she had done um that you know incorporated some of the south african musicians mostly the accordion she yeah. was interested in yes yeah yeah and that kind of forced him to because he kept playing the tape over and over going hmm, this is interesting and right that, that kind of forced him to say well let me go down there and see what's up right and he he listened to um king sunny ade yeah. lady smith lady smith black mambazo right and of course um that was about the time that a lot of American rock stars were boycotting Sun City, which was a resort area in South Africa where rich white people could go to listen to music, but of course not not black people. No. And um, you know, we all know about apartheid and and the you know the yeah that's another conditions. another side of this uh, whole thing is that. Uh, um, you know, he's been criticized for going down there during the cultural uh, blockade that the uh, uh, African National Congress had insisted that the UN put in. And, um, and you know, there's, there's discrepancy on whether you think that Paul Simon was uh, uh, breaking, breaking that yeah. boycott. Um, it, you know, it was really put in place to stop you know, acts from going to play and Sun City. Benefiting and benefiting um, and financially. To, especially you know, solely to the white right. uh, uh Africans and uh and bypassing uh the issues. And that's not exactly what Paul did. I mean no. he just goes there to work with m- black musicians. Right pay them handsomely mm-hmm. uh, uh, and and at the same time um, because this is such a cultural pheno- phenomenon while this music uh, certainly uh, existed uh, in Africa and other parts of the world it was relatively unknown certainly in the United States totally and you know by this becoming such a huge hit it opens the doors to uh, to this whole uh, um, uh, piece of music geography that and you know had, had remained shut out right of, uh, and i'm, of I'm music. really glad it did because i love that music 
it too. Um, I knew nothing about it until no, this. Until it uh, came I, out. I knew, a, I knew a little bit from being a Peter Gabriel fan, and uh-huh. I know he was into world music. Uh, and, uh, you know, I knew some of those guys like uh, Yusu Endor uh, and things like that. But nothing like what, you know, what happens when, when Graceland becomes, you know, a, a ginormous hit. Yeah, and, and uh, the cool thing is that the mus- some of the musicians that he met in South Africa, he ended up and collaborated with on Graceland. He ended up using oh, uh, yeah. in the future mm-hmm. in his as part of his band, yeah, yeah, one of yeah. whom was um, the guitarist Ray Fury, yeah. and the other one, um, the fretless bass player Bakithi Kumalo. Yeah, uh, uh, Bakithi Kumalo uh, was still his bass player when I saw him here a couple. Oh, months ago. that's yeah. great! Yeah. Oh, I'm so yeah. glad he's yeah, still Ray with Yeah, Ray Fury him. passed away a couple of years ago, but uh, you know, uh, you know, as far as the, any kind of controversy, um, you know, I kind of see it in Paul's, you know, on Paul's side. It, it there was no, you know, there was no uh uh intent other than to just you know work with these folks Collaborate. from musician to musician yeah and uh you know uh, and show respect and and ex- yeah know. and expose uh, this uh, this music uh to the world yep i'm glad he did the um the bass playing on uh one of the songs at least you can call me al which we're going to play mm-hmm. by cherry uh, chase right? yeah <laughs> that uh, by the way another funny that's Kumalo on that was really funny I love that yeah yeah, he um, he plays an amazing bass line on that on that song and um, also um, I just want to say something about the process where um, they would go into the studio and start improvising and just playing and then Paul would hear something he liked and ask them to do it again and then isolate that part and take and then and they pull take different it, they, parts yeah, out. Yeah, and they took it all home yeah. uh, to uh, to New York and uh, and they piece it together into these pop songs. Right. And on and on this song which which him and and uh, Roy Halley did together. Which and that was, was very time-consuming. Completely unusual and unique of a process. Right. They they stripped some of their improvising away and and just got the guitar part yeah. for this song, the rhythm mm-hmm. that Ray Fury plays on. You can call me Al if you listen uh, carefully. You can hear it in the background. Well, what do you think? What song should we play? <laughs> uh, you can call me Al. Why am I soft in the middle now? Why am I soft in the middle? The rest of my life is so hard. I need a photo opportunity. I want a shot of redemption. Don't want to end up a cartoon in a cartoon graveyard. Bone digger, bone digger, dogs in the moonlight. Far away my well-lit door. Just a beer belly, beer belly. Get these mutts away from me, you know. I don't find this stuff amusing anymore. If you be my bodyguard, I can be your long lost pal. I can call you Betty. Betty, when you call me, you can call me out. Yeah, and you can also hear the um, the wonderful voices of the all male eleven member oh, choir, Lady Smith, Lady uh, Smith Mombazo. Black Mombazo. Yeah, yeah. 
which um, I just got went down a total rabbit hole listening to them <laughs> while I was. I mean, they are fantastic, and somehow I started remembering the Cook Islands choral Christian choral music, which that for some reason they reminded me of, and I started listening to that, and I I just like you couldn't find me for a while. Shelley's yeah. gone. Yeah. Um, he had to, you know, like we said, they had to take these all back to the States and then turn the tracks into songs. And he had to find words for each of the songs. Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the other song, of course, that, you know, just blew the top off everything was Graceland. Um, he felt that this was his best example of bringing world music and kind of merging it with American um with American, you know, rock and, and, um, rock and pop. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. And just kind of like bringing them together. He, um, he realized, wait a minute, I'm, I have this song that's, um, kind of based on South African music, but I'm calling it Graceland. And how does it have anything to do with Graceland? So he realized he needed to actually Graceland visit being, Graceland. Uh, Elvis's, Elvis, uh, Elvis uh, Costello, Elvis <laughs> no, Presley. Elvis Presley. Yeah. yeah. Um, so he decided the original to, Elvis. to visit Graceland and um, and and came up with this idea: like people are going to Graceland to try to find redemption of some kind, mm-hmm. and somehow he he merged those ideas together to come up with the the whole story of Graceland, which was, again, the first part of it was autobiographical, and then it turned into a total kind of imaginary experience of somebody traveling to Graceland. Well, let's play a little of Graceland. These, you know, the lyrics, like I said, they just, they, some of them just come to him and it surprised even him for, Again, the subconscious talking to him there. He says, like, he's quoted in the book as saying, the line, losing love is like a window in your heart. Everybody sees you're blown apart. And he says, when that came out, I thought someone had punched me in the heart. I lost my breath and I just sat down. He, You know, it's just like, whoa, where did that come from? Right. Um, But he sees, like, the healing that's happening at Graceland and in in the American South as similar to what's what was going on in South Africa at a time at that time. So that's how he pulled it all together. It's pretty cool. And it's, um, it's like a journey. It's uh you know, I put that song on and, you know, I'm in the car with him. Right. Uh, it's you know, I can see all the same sights. 
uh, that he mentions in there. Yes. His his next um, kind of world music journey took yeah. him to... Out of, out of South Africa to Latin yeah. America. Yep, to mm-hmm. Brazil mm-hmm. mostly, but also he became real interested in the drumming traditions of Latin America, and um, he named his next album The Rhythm of the Saints, which was based on the traditional belief that the Holy Spirit was inside drums that were used in various religious um, rituals and rites Afri- in Africa. It's kind of wherever Brazil. you find it, but uh, sure, uh, but drums work sometimes. Yeah, and actually, it's you know, it's not so far afield because he's looking at black drumming traditions in Brazil, which of course came from Africa. Oh yeah. So yeah. you know, there's a through line to all this, a lot of this world yeah, music. Same thing with rock and roll. Yeah, and when he was down there, he got into uh, something called ayahuasca. Ayahuasca, which yes, is a, a, a psychedelic. Uh, that's right. Drink. Yep. Yep. And he, favored by a shaman everywhere. Yeah, and apparently he. He, you know, drank it, and then he wrote this song called Spirit Voices, um, which is on that album. But he he continued with his interest after that record on this drug. On the ayahuasca. Yes. And yeah. he, you know, at first he used it for spiritual purposes, but then he started <laughs> using it to help him with his songwriting. And, you know, that's a, yeah, a bad a path to go right, down with right. because it kind of turned against him and became a negative voice inside his head instead of a positive one. Well, let's hear some of the positive voices in Spirit Voices. Well, that's quite the travel log with those two albums, uh, Graceland and, um, and Rhythm of the Saints. Yes, a great travel experience without leaving your home. Yeah, right there in the 80s. Uh, so we get into the 90s. Um, you know, Paul Simon doesn't doesn't really have a, a, a lot of hits or, you know, albums that make, you know, big cultural uh, uh, changes. He just does what he does. He also settles down uh, with uh, Edie Brickell, right. of, of who he's still married to. That's right. Um, you know, so that's uh, the longest term relationship that uh, that he's had. Still going on. Yep. And then I think he, he made an attempt at Broadway. Um, and it's funny, you know, I brought this up with Hilburn in that, you know, here's a guy who, you know, learned how to become a songwriter after... Uh, eight years of frustration of developing the skill uh, and um, and then he you know takes over becomes a, a bit of a control freak which he freely admits uh, and then he tries his hand in Hollywood with you know poor results right um, and <laughs> and now he goes to Broadway and I, I just I don't understand how he doesn't learn the lesson from Hollywood that like, oh, you know, maybe what I should do is work with some people, uh, kind of get a feel for um, how this all works. 
and and you know have a successful uh, musical and and then go and do your own thing because now you understand the rules and right. you can understand what rules to bend, which is you know common in any uh, artistic pursuit. Right. So uh, it's just kind of funny, but you know he just keeps on trucking along, uh, making music, um, still you know uh, a, um, a a very well known touring act. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, he has made some interesting music, uh, recently, wouldn't you say? Yes. Yeah. I mean, one of the, um, albums he made earlier in this decade, so beautiful or so what, um, he has a, um, you know, it's kind of like a through line here of, um, African diaspora, um, interest. So we had Jamaica, we had South Africa, we have the African drumming, you know, African influenced drumming in Latin America. And um, um, he he wrote, did a song called Getting for Ready for Christmas Day on this album in 2011, which he um, had listened to recordings maybe in the Library of Congress or someplace he got these old recordings of of sermons in black American churches mm-hmm. and he sampled parts of it and put it as a as part of this song getting ready for Christmas Day because part of the sermon is getting ready for Christmas Day and you can hear that throughout the the song but you hear like churchgoers um, call and response kind of people in the audience in the background of this song which I thought was really cool and shows that even in his later you know songwriting life and career he's still looking outward and trying to find um, influences yeah, and influences, things that he yeah. can which is learn difficult from to do these days and when use. you know we live in a global society and uh, you know with a click of a button you can you know uh, find all kinds of music from all all over the world right 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 Yeah, Yeah. but I I like this song. It's cool. Well, let's listen to Getting Ready for Christmas. Day. Day. From early in November to the last week of December, I got money matters weighing me down. Well, the music may be merry, but it's only temporary. I know Santa Claus is coming to town. In the days I work my day job, in the nights I work my night, but it all comes down to working All right, so you know we skipped the the the, the beginning and kind of came in where Paul Simon starts singing, and it's interesting where you have what you were talking about that call and response. And if you think about it, what he's doing there is sampling. Yep. Yeah. He, he's taking them the, these pieces from uh, these old tapes of these preachers and these churches and and inserting them in to create his own call and response. So he's taking again uh, another influence, which is uh, you know sampling in, in rap and hip hop music is very common, and putting that into this music in 2011. Right. And they and they use that foot stomp and rhythm too in yeah, the in the song, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. which is real churchy. Yeah, I think you know. There's there's another thing about Paul Simon that I I I'd love to bring up, um, and that is, 
you know, <laughs> he's such a funny guy. Uh, and he's always has humor that uh, weaves in throughout the music. Uh, you know, some songs are, you know, very serious, but, you know, some songs, uh, you know, 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, even Kodachrome. Uh, there, there's a lot of humor. Whimsy. In yeah. It, and whimsy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, he, you know, he continues to, to do that to uh, to this day. You know, it, it it's funny. I mean, he's, he's always wondered why people don't understand what a great sense of humor is. But again, when you start your career off in Simon and Garfunkel, which was <laughs> right. so serious. It's kind of hard to kind of pull that that uh, that public persona yeah. back and 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 show the uh, you know the uh, uh, the more um, comedic elements. Right, of your and life. I and I you know one thing I like about his solo career more than Simon and Garfunkel um, period is how much he gets more into rhythms. Um, which are really important to me in music, you know, like that his stuff is more, it's just, you know, because of the influences of world music and using Muscle Shoals and using, you know, drumming and, you know, uh, sampling things and stuff like that. It just puts a lot more liveliness into his, I mean, I loved Simon and Garfunkel, but it was, you know, kind of more folky and, and uh, kind of sleepy. (laughs) <laughs> for me <laughs> I like something get me up and dance right right yeah. right and speaking of that the, the next song that we were going to play is quite is quite uh, danceable oh I think. yeah and um, this is a fun one um, because it's kind of a tongue in cheek story um, and it's fairly recent um, about you know a, a musician uh, going out for smoke uh, from his uh, his gig and getting locked and having the stage door lock behind and trying to get into the front door and not having his proper cre- his proper credentials right. right and it's you know it's something that it, it started out as a kind of a playful uh, joke about you know, not having a wristband and the song kind of develops into a more of a social commentary on the haves and have nots and injustice. Like if you don't have the thing, whatever it is, the card, the wristband, the badge, it's done. You can't get in. It doesn't matter. You can't argue about it. You just can't get in. All right. So let's listen to wristband. Stage door to breathe some nicotine and maybe check my mailbox, see if I can read the screen. Then I heard a click, the stage door lock. I knew just what that meant. I'm gonna have to walk around the block if I wanna get in a wristband, my man. You got to have a wristband. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Paul Simon, Paul Simon. So, so, um, well, uh, what do you uh, think of Mr. Hilburn's book? I enjoyed Mr. Hilburn's book. Of course you did. <laughs> no surprise. No, we both enjoyed it. Oh, I think. I, yes, I mean, yes. You know, it's. Yeah. Um, I, I I liked I liked the way he focused on um, the writing process and the musicianship, and you know, I mean, he gets into. 
uh, you know, his private life and stuff like that, too. But to me, it's really interesting on how he made the music, who he collaborated with, what the songwriting process was like. And I really appreciated all those elements. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, uh, of course, Hilburn's uh, an old school reporter. And, uh, you know, it's uh, here are the facts, ma'am, uh, yeah. <laughs> type, of, type of book, uh, but, uh, you know, written in some very nice prose. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, it's uh, it, this is unusual for us. You know, I don't, I don't think we've done a book where we both read the book. I don't uh, think so either. Time. It's pretty mm. crazy. So, uh, but, um, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's sad to think that Paul Simon's touring career, at least, is is coming to a close uh you know i keep uh i keep hinting uh and suggesting and, and maybe mr simon will take me up on it that you know he ought to follow bruce springsteen and uh you know pick up a residency uh in uh, in broadway oh, uh, on mm-hmm. broadway mm-hmm. uh you know uh you know that way he can you know come into work every day uh, do his thing and then he's got to respect the neighborhood and respect yeah. the neighborhood yes <laughs> yes yeah so uh glad you uh you liked it and uh we will be uh, doing something very shortly uh, for the next Rock and Roll Librarian. Uh, we we promise to uh, kind of push up the schedule a little bit more for you folks that really uh, dig the show. I promise. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, so let's, uh, you know, let's leave Mr. Simon, who is still crazy after all these years. <sighs> Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. The Rock and Roll Librarian. Produced and hosted by Christian Swain. Co-host, Shelley Sorensen. All sound design and incidental music by Jerry Danielson. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes 
please visit rnrap.com for more information. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.